Welcome to Half Finished to Done, a podcast for passionate business owners like you who are ready to stop procrastinating and start finishing all of your half-done projects. I'm your host, Christina, and I'm looking forward to helping you finish your projects in a calm, sustainable way using a simple, repeatable process. All along the way, we'll be working through the mental, emotional, and logistical obstacles that are standing between you and extraordinary projects. Let's get into it. All right, welcome back to the podcast. I am super excited to chat with my guest today, Megan Kirstead. Tell us a little bit about yourself and your work. So I am a coach. I don't boil myself to anything more simple than that because I help people with a lot of different things. A lot of my clients are entrepreneurs. A lot of my clients are people with ADHD. A lot of my clients are multi-passionate rebels, but I really focus on helping people thrive with their unique brain and body. So I also work with a lot of people who have chronic illness. Really, I'm here to help people thrive no matter what their context or circumstances. I love that definition. I just like feel at ease immediately when you describe it like that. So I brought you here today to talk more specifically about ADHD. This is definitely something that comes up a lot in my work at Peak Coaching and in my program. We definitely have people who either have had ADHD or diagnosed a long time ago or are recently diagnosed and are really just navigating that. I think this episode is going to be valuable for those people, right? Anyone experiencing that. But also, I was just thinking about this before we started recording. Anyone who has someone that you're close to who has ADHD to understand that person more. You're nodding along. So tell me how you feel about that. Especially as someone, I wasn't diagnosed with ADHD until I was 23, which actually is better than a lot of the people I've worked with. A lot of people, as you experience, either have a recent diagnosis or just learning it for the first time. I had no inkling, though looking back, it explained everything. But I had not, especially because I had the the same perception that a lot of people do, that it's like something that like young boys who are running around a classroom have. And I was a very bright, albeit anxious and distractible human, I didn't even think that that was a possibility. So I got diagnosed when I was 23. One of the things to realize is the more we're learning about it, I think this will change eventually. ADHD is pretty common. They estimate it somewhere around anywhere between 5 to 10% of the population, which actually from a sort of biological perspective means it's not really a disorder per se. It's just a different type of nervous system. And there's lots of fascinating research about how it actually might be an adaptation that just doesn't fit into our current world and would be really awesome for a world that's very like dynamic and changing, like, for example, if you're hunter-gathering. So this will be useful for everyone because we also exist along spectrums. Like everyone who has ADHD, it doesn't present in the same way. We all have different attributes. And even if you don't have ADHD, you probably identify with some of the parts of ADHD. Just understanding what causes it, what sort of things you can do to mitigate it or embrace it is really helpful to anyone on the planet pretty much, especially because there's additional evidence. I'm a big science nerd, so I'm going to be making a lot of references to research. There's research that because of our use of screens, actually a lot of brain changes are happening because of that. And a lot of them are mimicking ADHD symptoms. In addition, 
a lot of other psychological conditions actually mimic ADHD symptoms too. So like this is going to be relevant to almost everyone, (laughs) if not everyone. I love that you said all of that because I attended one of your classes recently on ADHD and the model, which we can get into because I was taking so many notes that entire time. But I was there in two roles. I was there as a practitioner, somebody who wants to better support my clients who have ADHD, but also as a human. I was like, this is amazing. I have to do all of these things. I want to go back to one of the things that you said. For anyone who doesn't understand the term nervous system, can you define that? Absolutely. So our nervous system is the sensory data collection that our bodies have. And it's really the nerves that exist in your body, but it's also things like your eyes. Your eyes are part of your nervous system. Your ears are part of your nervous system. Your mouth's part of your nervous system. So essentially your body collects data through all of these different nervous system apparatus, and then it sends it to our spinal cord which is why, of course, our spinal cord is really important. It's important to not damage it. And then it goes to our brain. Our brain is like the central processing unit of the nervous system. It's like the command center. And then in our brain, it actually takes that sensory data and makes sense of it. So almost everything we experience at some point goes through the brain. It's actually very rare for things to not have brain involvement in our nervous systems. So this is why understanding sort of that your brain is going to be this the thing that informs everything else and why coaching is so powerful because your brain actually can affect how you experience the world, which is so cool. So cool, <laughs> right? It's this whole idea of the model, which we've probably talked about on every single episode at this point, but the idea of thoughts, feelings, actions, and results. So before we dive into that, what is the simplest definition that you have of ADHD? I love the idea that it is an interest-based nervous system. So it is a nervous system that is primarily motivated by things being interesting, challenging, different, novel, and that is very much hardwired into sort of how we exist. So it isn't certainly, in my opinion, a deficit of attention, and this is something a lot of ADHD experts agree on. It's really just a different way of engaging with the world. It's primarily affecting our motivation and sort of how we interact with doing things, which of course includes components like emotions and attention and focus and all sorts of like subcomponents, but it's really about the things that get us doing stuff. Okay, let's talk about motivation then. Perfect segue into that. How do you think about motivation as a person who has ADHD and a practitioner who works with people with ADHD? So let's get into the science of this a little bit, because this is something that I think it took me a while to put together the pieces of. And by understanding the underlying like neurobiological mechanisms, it just opened up a lot of doors. I'm sure a lot of your listeners have heard of dopamine. I don't know if that's something that that you go too much into, but I know that's something you go into a bit. So dopamine is a neurotransmitter and it is, we commonly think of it as the pleasure chemical, but it's not. It is actually the neurotransmitter that makes you want things. It's the neurotransmitter that literally gets you moving. It will trigger a cascade that eventually like you want to get up and go to the kitchen. Dopamine is involved in that process. So motivation is taking action based on wanting something. That's how I think of motivation. And for 
you to be motivated to do something, essentially the reward has to outweigh the cost. And that is essentially a calculation that your brain is doing in the background to determine whether or not you're actually going to take action. And dopamine is involved in this. Better way to say this, more dopamine gets released depending on the size of the reward. So you need to release enough dopamine to actually break the inertia. Essentially, like your brain has to release more dopamine to do harder things. So I have this concept called the motivation threshold, which is like literally just imagine you have this level that's set for a particular task, like going and working out. That's set at a certain level. If your brain doesn't release enough dopamine to get over that threshold, you're not going to do it. So one of the things to realize with ADHD in motivation is that we have lower levels of dopamine. And it's unclear what exactly causes that. Is it a production issue? Is it a reception issue? Is it just a low level of dopamine overall? But it means the thresholds you're exceeding are actually bigger because you're starting from a lower dopamine point. So this is why the interest-based nervous system is so important to understand because you need to release more dopamine to get over that hurdle which means something actually needs to be more interesting to you. It's not because you're broken. It's not because you're flawed. It's not because of anything but chemicals in your brain, which is why it's so important to understand the things that motivate your brain so that you actually, if you have a goal and want to do something, that you actually get going. That is a simplified version of it, but should hopefully give a general gist of like, really what causes motivation? It's when we think we're going to get something. Love the summary. You're breaking my brain. I think about these topics all day, but somehow the way you explain it, it just lands in a different way. And I'm also thinking about people who do not have ADHD. And I want to reflect two of the things that you said. The reward has to outweigh the cost. That's just true as a human. 100%. And breaking the inertia. That phrase is really meaningful. So let's talk about how to influence this. And let's talk about this actually in the context of finishing projects. So on the surface, if you look at your marketing and my marketing, I think sometimes that people would assume that we have very differing opinions, but I actually think we share way more philosophies than we differ in. Oh, I totally agree. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Awesome. Like I read your stuff sometimes and I'm like, huh, I wonder if she thinks I'm saying the opposite, but I'm saying the same thing. So this is awesome. So then let's talk about this. So finishing projects and really influencing your dopamine and then influencing your motivation? Where do we begin? (laughs) All right. So we can think of this in a few different ways. So this is why this threshold idea is really powerful, at least to my brain, is because it gives me something to interact with. So there's a few ways to change it. If, for example, you want to do something and you're struggling to do it, essentially there's a mismatch between your dopamine or we can even just call it your interest and your motivation. So essentially, you just haven't gotten over it yet. So you can do a few things. You can increase the interest in some way, shape, or form, and we'll talk about how to do that. Or you can decrease the difficulty of the motivation threshold. So essentially, you can lower the threshold in various ways to make it so that with your current interest level, you can exceed it. And a lot of the techniques I use with my clients combine those so that it makes it a lot easier. So Let's talk about reducing the motivation threshold. So one is you can actually just change your thoughts around the particular task at hand. If you're thinking it's really difficult, 
and like going to be something that requires a lot of effort, you're actually artificially increasing the threshold because the threshold isn't some objective thing. The threshold is set at least partially by your thoughts. Let's talk about that. Artificially increasing the threshold. I think of what you just said is like, it's faking yourself out. Yeah, it is. You're believing your own bullshit and it's making it harder on yourself. Exactly. And it really does. Like it literally sort of increases the difficulty of the task because essentially your brain's thinking, this is going to be something really hard because your brain wants to save energy. That's the sort of underlying mechanism here. It's like, it doesn't want to spend energy on things because that is inefficient and would lead to less optimal biological outcomes. So it wants things to be easy. So if you're saying, this is going to be really hard and take a lot of energy and I don't want to do this. Yeah, your brain's going to be like, why would I do it? You can change your thoughts around how difficult the task is. So that's the perception piece. You also can just make it easier, which for a lot of the people I work with involves like breaking things down into micro doses. I call it like atomic tasks to borrow from like atomic habits, like really the tiniest little next step you can make to make progress. That is a lot easier for your brain to sort of exceed. That changes the threshold. It lowers it than like 15 steps. If you're thinking of 15 steps, that's a lot harder than one step. You can do things like that. So we can actually just play with how difficult or easy something is. And the interesting thing about this, I just want to mention this because I'll forget otherwise because I have ADHD, is you don't always want things to be easier. In fact, by understanding this, you can use this to keep yourself from doing things you don't want to do too. So you can increase the difficulty of something with your perception or even just the difficulty of the task if you want to change a behavior to keep you from doing something. So this is why I just love this concept. It's just you can attack it from any angle. Okay. My brain immediately goes to procrastination. And I think that sometimes when people come to work with me, they think that I'm going to be like, do all your shit and willpower and white knuckle your way through and go do it all and be really busy and miserable. Definitely not going to recommend that. So a huge part of breaking a procrastination habit is actually getting rid of like 75 to maybe even 85% of the shit that you do that you don't want to do, that you are saying yes to for other people, that you're saying yes to because you have shoulds around it. So I love this idea of taking a hard look at what is the stuff I'm doing right now that I don't actually want to be doing? And how do I make that harder, a higher barrier to entry for myself? Do you have an example of that? This is going to be a really like obvious one, but I think it's good to extend it. Like if, for example, you are someone who snacks in the evening and you want to break your snacking habit. I'm one of those people, not because of any body shaming stuff. I want to be clear about that. Just because snacking in the evening is usually because I want dopamine, not because I'm hungry. And I don't want to do that. One of the stupid, easy things you can do to make it harder to snack in the evening is put the snack farther away and make it harder to access. That is literally increasing the motivation threshold because you have to do more work to get it. It's that simple. Okay. I love that example. And I will also give an example on the other side of making it easier. So I had posted on social media, and I know you had interacted with this post, of creating your deep work kit So when you want to do a deep work session of focused uninterrupted time, know the supplies that you're going to need and just get those all ready in advance, even have them in a little like actual box or kit. And then when you're ready to start, you just whip out all your supplies and you've just, what is it? You've decreased the motivation threshold. 
Yeah, because essentially, otherwise, if you don't have it in front of you, you actually have to think about where it is. You have to get up to go find it. And then you have to bring it back. All of these are additional energy your body and brain has to expend. And particularly if you have ADHD, there are opportunities for your brain to get distracted and go down another rabbit hole. Okay. How do we turn this into an exercise that somebody could do just while listening to this episode? I'm thinking of like, what are the top habits, let's say top three habits that you want to make harder or, and then the top three you want to make easier. Do you have any other ideas? Yeah. Think of any behavior change that you want to make and just document what your thoughts are around that particular change. And are those thoughts increasing your difficulty or are they decreasing your difficulty? And are they increasing your interest or decreasing your interest? Just I would categorize them in like one of those four categories, multiple categories, because if your thoughts around a particular behavior change are not helping you, depending on your goal, you want to change your thoughts because those are one of the easier, maybe not easier, but those are one of the, the tools we have, you know, most access to. Okay. I think that's actually a really good segue into this idea of metacognition. So one of the things that really stuck out to me at the class that you taught was this idea that people who have ADHD actually struggle more to articulate and see their own thinking and their own emotions. And I'll just say that's a huge part of my program is what are you thinking? What are you feeling? What are you doing from those thoughts and feelings? And so how do we make that, how does somebody with ADHD make that easier on themselves or more possible? So just understanding that it's going to be harder for you, step one, and just like having compassion for yourself, that those are pieces of the coaching process that might not come as easy. And I say this as someone for whom this stuff has relatively innate. I've been coaching myself or coaching other people's long enough that I've actually gotten really good at being on to myself, but I still need help. <laughs> Don't get me wrong. But the thing to realize is probably the times you are going to struggle the most are in the moment when there's a lot of stuff happening. So those are going to be the moments where you probably won't until you get really good at it. And even then, sometimes you won't, you're going to struggle to notice your own thoughts and emotions. So like in a very intense conversation, or if you are even in an environment where there's a lot going on, anything that sort of taxes your cognitive load you are going to have much harder time noticing what's going on and being able to intervene. Because essentially, this is a form of executive function. And that is the part of your brain that's just not as good. I'm not going to sugarcoat it. Your gifts are not in executive function. So one of the things that I teach my clients to do is sort of view it like an investigator after the fact, is to try to really just be honest with yourself and go back to a situation and and try to like get back into your body, get back into your mind. And it means building the habit of noticing your thoughts and feelings, not in the moment. <laughs> Essentially, like building a habit where like once or twice a day you sit down or you don't even have to do a notebook, but I recommend particularly until you've mastered this, like actually writing it down and just being onto yourself and noticing what you were feeling and thinking. Because is much the habit of actually sitting down and doing it as it is noticing in the moment. You're probably not going to be able to do that in the moment, but your brain is so curious and so able to notice things. You actually take in a lot of extrasensory data that if you just build the habit of sort of sitting down and creating time and space to notice these things, you will start to do it a lot more innately. 
So the word that I always use with my clients is retroactively. So I've always heard that change happens first retroactively. So you look back and you're like, oh, that's what was happening. And then it happens in the moment. And then you can get to a place where it's happening proactively where you're like, oh, I was, I always say I procrastinated. I'm procrastinating. I was about to procrastinate. (laughs) Just simple as that. So I have an assignment actually that I give my clients if they miss one of the homework deadlines, I recommend that they do the missed homework assignment. And it just helps them actually go back retroactively and be like, what was happening throughout the entire week that made me not do the homework? And like you said, be an investigator, get super curious. It's just like, what was going on? And what I'll find, and probably everyone's responses is that, so this will show up with my clients, is that in the moment, their brain's like, I don't have any time. Let's just say their nervous system is taxed. They're freaking out a little bit. They're high emotions. And so their brain just shuts down all possibilities. And then when they look back at the week retroactively, often they can be like, oh, I could have done it here. I could have done it here. I could have done it here. I had 20 minutes here, right? And so you find so many more possibilities in retrospect than you often find in the moment. And then like you said, that's then preparing you for the next time. I love this. I think fantastic. Totally love this practice. Yeah. ADHD approved. hundred <laughs> percent. Very much mimics a lot of the stuff that I do with people. Because in the moment, a lot of times you aren't going to have as much ability to really manage the thing, which is why it's about identifying sort of your triggers, your problems, your issues, and then sort of mitigating them so they don't happen as much in the future. Like essentially, uh, one of the concepts I have is like partnering with your future self. So this is actually a theme this month in my group is like thinking about your future self and potential. And if you think about helping your future self in these retrospective moments, you'll make your life easier and easier over time. And you learn from it. It's like you are a partnered investigator with your future self to figure out, okay, how do we make this easier? How do we make ourselves more successful next time? And you don't always solve it in one go. But if you think of your future self as someone who also has your back, you're going to want to help them and they're going to want to help you too. Yes. I'll just shamelessly plug one of the past episodes of the Peak Podcast. We did an episode with Nate Andorsky about behavioral economics. And we actually talked a lot about the mechanism behind your future self. So I love this idea of the theme of future self coming up in so many different ways. Thank you for mentioning that. So many different directions to go. Do you have some examples off the top of your head of ways that you've made life easier for future you? Oh, yeah. So one of my biggest struggles is feeding myself, which is funny because actually, I think it's at least partially because of this. Food is a really, really important thing to me. Like, I don't love the term, but I am definitely a foodie. And like, I've taken professional level pastry classes. You know, I know a lot about food. So as a result, it's something I'm passionate about. Unfortunately, this does mean I'm a bit of a perfectionist, for lack of a better term, around food. I'm not someone who typically would be happy eating peanut butter and jelly for dinner every day. Just not going to be me. So I really debugged my dinner habits. Essentially, like, why do I not make dinner for myself? Especially because I know how to cook. I can whip stuff up from stuff in my pantry, etc. I very quickly realized that the biggest thing for me that is a challenge is actually decision overwhelm. So essentially, there are too many options. And I don't know how to keep them all in my head, especially when I'm hungry, when I'm tired at the end of the day. So it's really about reducing decision fatigue. So that means essentially having preset 
menu to choose from in terms of the stuff that I'm going to cook. For me, that means one of the things I do for my future self is I do have, I do a meal kit. I get a few per week and it gives me enough freedom that I don't get angry because essentially if I'm someone, if I try to plan very strictly, I will flip the table and light things on fire because I hate being told what to do, even when it's my own self. So the way that I help my future self is by limiting the options that are available to me. Doesn't mean I can't go outside of those, but it means like I have three or four things to choose from to make dinner rather than the entire universe of my cupboard and pantry. So that process very much was like, let's get into the moment and imagine why we don't cook and let's figure out a solution for future Meg that'll make it easy to cook. I love the term debugging. For some reason, that just feels so fun to me. I'm not sure if it should feel fun, but it totally does. (laughs) Oh, yeah. I love debugging things. That's one of the main things I do with clients is debug. Yes. I call it troubleshooting, but I'm like, man, debugging just has a ring to it. So yeah. So looking, putting yourself in the moment, looking what is going on here, figuring it out, articulating it for yourself, and then coming up with a solution. In my world, we just call that obstacles and strategies. So exactly we're on the same page. Okay, I want to transition to something that lights me up about what you teach, which is play. And I spend a lot of time talking about what I call true rest. So mind off plus time off and the value of that as a person who wants to finish projects. So a myth is that if you want to finish projects, you have to spend all your time doing it and you need to be working all the time. Does not work. Not sustainable. Can you actually start by talking about the benefits from a science perspective of play? Absolutely. So it's interesting. We now have a lot of very compelling evidence that play is as fundamental a need for humans as essentially food, socialization. There, I forget, there's like seven things I think that are considered sort of innate. And if you don't get them, you start to really suffer. Play is one of them. And one of the reasons play is so important is because it takes our mind off things, but also because it allows us to make connections in our brain that when we are really consciously trying to solve a problem are essentially inaccessible to us. So one of the things, if we want to get into a little bit of stuff around neuroplasticity, which is essentially your brain sort of updating its connections neuroplasticity isn't about making new neurons, but it's about making new connections and learning deeply about things. And it turns out part of that process is in fact not focusing on the thing. You have to, like part of it's focusing on the thing, but if you don't have the follow-up stage where you are not focusing on it, essentially where you're sort of, imagine like your brain sort of like rewiring in the background, that's sort of how I think about it, won't happen. Like you can't focus 100% of the time and not sleep well and actually take advantage of neuroplasticity, period, done. (laughs) So play is one of the, the tools we have to increase neuroplasticity and rewiring and learning and all that kind of stuff because it essentially gives you, it turns off the parts of your brain that need to be turned off to make new and novel connections. We also have lots of evidence. It increases creativity. It increases empathy. Like the benefits are insane. There's a book, I forget the author's name. It's called, literally called Play, and it's by Dr. Stuart something. Hopefully, someone can get this for the podcast notes. I have a terrible memory for like details. So 
highly, highly recommend. It's a life-changing kind of thing. And it's written by a psychiatrist who focuses on this kind of stuff. How do you play? How do I play? What are your versions of play? For me, I mean, I have animals. So one of the things I do is definitely like spending time with the animals, like literally writhing around on the ground with the bunnies and the dog and, and just, you know, playing tug of war or just petting them. Like that's one version of play for sure. Another one, I'm a big like arts and crafts kind of person. I don't have like one particular thing I work on. I'm like a whimsical bounce around, but like I will often have some sort of fun crafting project that allows me to get out my jollies. Another, I love walks too. For me, walks are a form of play. This is another, I I go down a lot of rabbit holes and sort of tangents, but play doesn't have to be literally like a game, though I love games. So I'm not going to knock that, but it can be really anything that sort of gets you out of the very like conscious executive focused parts of your brain and gets you interested in a different way. Sometimes it's going to be like, very somatic, kinesthetic. So like in your body, like that's a form of play that a lot of us don't get as much of. We exercise or we we don't, but it's really anything that engages you in this sort of non-goal-oriented way. That's essentially the definition of play. It's like non-goal-oriented activities. It's stuff that you're literally just doing because, because you want to. It's really interesting to hear you say it like that because sometimes my brain will go to hobby And I have so many associations with the word hobby, which is another topic we should go into of associations with words that we don't even know are there until we articulate them. But to me, hobby means it's long-term, it's consistent, I'm continually getting better, and it has to have meaning. And all of a sudden, speaking of inertia, my brain's like, I don't fucking want to do any of that shit. That sounds tiring. What about if I lie in bed and do TikTok? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I love this idea of like play feels, this is a really interesting conversation on just the meaning of words, but I'm like play could be all of the same things, but it doesn't carry any of the negative connotations for me. So I'm like, yep, let's use word play. Exactly. That's such a, something I nerd out about a lot because especially, you know, I am life coach school trained. I do use the model and associated tools in my coaching and it all is about around language. It's around the language we use and what we also take for granted in the language we use, which is just a fascinating topic. If you really want to dive into it, you can, if you're at all like me, you can go down a Wikipedia rabbit hole that will take you years to parse because it's that complex. So it's fun stuff. I mean, that's a form of play for me, actually. Sometimes learning for me is in fact a form of play because it's not goal-oriented. I'm not like sitting there being like, I'm doing this for a particular you know, purpose. It's like, ooh, let's learn more about how language is stored in our brain because I feel like it and it sounds fun. Have you ever done Wikipedia racing? This is an aside, but it's an important one. I have not, but I'm going to guess I would love doing it. A hundred percent. So you have to choose two words. You can do this with somebody else. You choose two words, totally unrelated. And then you have to click. You have to start at the one word. You click through all the links until you end up at the other word. And whoever gets there fastest wins. It is oh, I love that. that. That's such a good like creative associative brain exercise too. Like that, I might have to try that at some point. So here's where my brain went with play is some, one of my versions of play has often been writing. And sometimes that's kind of heavy writing where I'm digging into my past and all those things. But I also have a few half written books, maybe less than half written. 
you will die. I wrote during quarantine, I wrote a book. I shouldn't say wrote. I half wrote a book about a life coach couple that falls in love in Playa del Carmen, Mexico. And then I proceeded to move there unintentionally. And then I have done a lot of writing around intuition. But I want to say this because I want everyone to know that even though my program is called Half Finished to Done, I have half finished shit, right? Half finished stuff is only a problem if it's taxing you mentally and emotionally. What are your thoughts on that? Oh, it's music to my ears is what it is. (laughs) I love it so much. No, that's exactly what I teach is like things being half finished or never finished. Like you can totally decide three quarters of the way through something that you're like, I don't want to finish it. And as long as you don't make it a problem, it's not a problem. It's when it takes up mental energy, when you make it mean something about you, that it's a problem. Because, And it's not because it's a problem objectively. It's just because it's a problem to your brain. I have so much like half-finished up. So I just, just finished after I think four years of on and off work, a couple pairs of amazing shoes where I was essentially individually applying tiny Swarovski crystals and they look like $4,000 shoes. That was the intention. But it took me four years because I'd run out and then I wouldn't order the new stuff and then it would sort of stop me and then I'd get distracted and move and do all this stuff. And it took me four years. Wasn't a problem though, because I knew like if I wanted to, I'd finish them. And if I didn't, also wouldn't matter. (laughs) Wouldn't mean anything about me. It just would mean I'd have a pair of half-finished shoes. I love it. I'm just imagining one like all done and the other one just plain and wearing it like that. I mean, you could do that. I know, right? (laughs) Actually, that could be a thing. I might start that trend. I finished mine though. So unfortunately, I would have to like do a whole new shoe, which is, I don't know if I want to do that. I really love this idea of just playing with the projects you do want to finish, right? There are projects you for sure want to finish and they're going to bring you forms of return on your investment. So I talk a lot about that. And then there's projects or books even. I have so many books that I read. One of my favorite books about projects, I've read 14% of it and it changed my life. I'm like, I might finish it one day, but so far I totally got what I needed from it. So yeah, that's one of the things that I also tell people, because of course I'm talking to people who are often like taking lots of courses and like really love learning. They'll buy all the things and then they'll shame themselves over the fact that they didn't finish them. But if you got something out of it, you don't have to finish it. Like you can, if you want to, but there's nothing wrong with like going in, doing one thing and being like, oh, that's enough. And you can let it be enough. And this is particularly important for people with ADHD because we have this. We have this interest-based nervous system, which means once we lose interest, we're going to move on to something else. And that's okay. It doesn't have to be a problem. Even in programs that I've bought that are other people's programs, and I not only like think they are the best shit ever, like I you know, will proselytize and tell people to join them. I don't know if I've ever actually, quote, officially finished them. In fact, I think in many cases, I will have done like 50% of the content, if that. So it doesn't mean like you don't have to complete things in the way that other people define. Completion is a thought and you can decide you're done with something whenever you're done with it. Completion is a thought. The first time I read this was from Ariana Huffington, and she said some version of the fastest way to finish a project is to drop it. That has stuck in my head for the last 10 years. I'm like, that really is the easiest way. You want to finish a project? Just call it done. Just decide you're not going to do it. Done is an arbitrary 
finish line as it is. We just make it up already, so you can change what the made-up thing is. I'm thinking about what people might be thinking as they listen, and I think we make a pretty compelling case for play, for dropping projects that no longer serve you, for metacognition, looking at your thoughts and feelings, dropping the threshold of motivation in creative ways. What do you say to somebody who's like, someone who's like, that's all nice. I still have a ton of shit that has to get done. What then? So one, I mean, this is unsurprising. Even if they say that, we are always going to go through and question, does it need to be done? Especially because need to be done is also a thought, but it often is a little, there is more wiggle room there than most people realize. Even if something needs to be done, oftentimes there's a different way to do it, an easier way to do it, or a B minus work kind of way to do it. So one, we just question whether or not it needs to be done, but like, what is the thing you're thinking needs to be done? And how is that not exactly true? So we'll go through that and just question the shit out of that. And oftentimes I have sessions where, because I do both one-on-one and I have you know a group program. In my one-on-one sessions, we'll often literally just go through, I will make my clients sort of like put out the list of stuff that they think they need to do and we'll go through it and we'll document it, externalize it, and then we'll go through and question it all. Speaking of music to your ears, that's music to my ears. So in my world, I call that an inventory. And then you do, you dump, you delegate, or you delay. And a huge portion of things can be dumped, delegated, and delayed. And I love what you said about, we just question, it all has to get done. That thought right there, I would say, is probably one of the top five most painful thoughts that my clients have. I lecture about this all the time in my my classes. I'm like, that thought right there causes so much pressure. It makes you cling on to all of the things. It makes you unwilling to question them. And then here's the irony. It doesn't all get done anyway. Oh, no. That is especially if you have ADHD. It's true for everyone, but especially if you have ADHD, that that pressure is pretty much a surefire way to cause you to freeze, get overwhelmed, and not do it. It's almost, I mean, I'm to the point where I almost don't have people model it because I'm like, yep, that just means you're going to not do it because that pressure is pretty much poison to your motivation centers. So the part, the other part of this is for the things that we decide stay on the list and, you know, we've edited them appropriately, we work on wanting them. We work on wanting them. So this, to tie it back to the motivation threshold, this is increasing interest. So this is essentially increasing the amount of dopamine your brain releases so that you're able to, like, actually do stuff. You do that by at least partially changing your thoughts about why you want to do something. Like so few things are needs, like breathing and not much else, you know, depending on the time horizon. But so it means like really understanding why you want to do the thing. And if you discover you don't want to do the thing and you think it's stupid and not worth your time, that's something that, you know, gets dropped. And I think that was your language. Yeah. Yes. Okay. This is so good. So anytime if you're listening, if you have the thought, I don't want to do it. Either that's true and then be willing to dump, delegate, or delay it, or it's not true and you just have to be on to yourself. I just say, switch it to, I do want to do it. When I think I don't want to do it, I'm wrong. Why do I want to do it? And it sometimes is easy as that to then start 
selling yourself on why you do actually want to do it. Yeah, and it is. It's exactly that. It's selling yourself on why you actually want to do it. Just that simple reframe often is enough to break the inertia. Sometimes you might have to do a little more selling. Like sometimes you might have to like really be be honest about like why you are willing to be uncomfortable to do something. And that's another way I sort of ask people to phrase like, why are you willing to be uncomfortable to get this thing done? Yes, that is so good. And I also like to think of it as what is the flavor of discomfort that you're willing to tolerate? I love that. The flavor of discomfort. That's great. What is one thing that we haven't talked about yet that you would like to leave for anyone who's listening who either has ADHD or who has somebody who they're close to who has ADHD? We've touched on this, but I think it's so important that I want to like break it out into its own thing, which is ADHD or any sort of psychiatric psychological condition is biology, not drama. It is chemicals and electricity in your brain that affect your behavior, period. There is nothing to be ashamed of because it's not something that you have agency over. It's part of your wiring. There is nothing to be ashamed of. It would be like being ashamed of having a heart murmur or being ashamed that you have an extra bone in your toe. It's just part of you. The more you resist it, the more you try to act like someone who has a different type of nervous system, the more you're going to struggle. Like that has been the theme of my life and the theme of many clients. So really just remind yourself, it's chemicals and electricity. Oftentimes, that's what I literally will say when someone like, like really anxious and spiraling out and is like, it's just chemistry. That's okay. Your brain's doing exactly what it's supposed to at work and as design. And yeah, it sucks, but there's nothing to be ashamed of. Oh, that's so powerful. And I'll tack on that if you are grieving, like if you just got a diagnosis, I think a lot of people go through a really intense grieving period. One where you're like, why did nobody pick up on this is what I've heard from a lot of people. And like, why does it have to be like this? It's not fair. And so I think allowing yourself to both grieve and also accept the chemistry of it. A hundred percent. I have definitely had gone through that process because it's frustrating to know that there was an answer the entire time and that it wasn't because you were lazy or lacked willpower or were undisciplined. It was just because you have some different chemistry and electrical wiring in your body and brain. Yeah. Yeah. That is frustrating to like know the entire time that you were shitting on yourself, which is something I'm really good at doing, that there was this answer out there. Let that be something you're angry about if you're angry about it. But also realize that you don't, it doesn't have to mean that life is necessarily going to be awful or you aren't going to be able to achieve your goals. None of this is true. You just have to learn to work with it rather than against it. You gave a homework assignment before your class and you were like, what do you think that a successful business owner looks like, dresses like? And I thought about that homework assignment so much because I was like, you know, I do have some preconceived notions. And also I realized that I have seen so many successful business owners with ADHD, especially I would say in the last year who are super vocal about it. You, Simone Soul, to name two people. So when I was answering the homework, I was like, oh, I no longer associate business success with like a clean house or well-dressed 
or has makeup on. I'm like, fuck all that shit. (laughs) Yeah. And just questioning the associations we have. If you use the model, you are questioning your thoughts, but also question the individual words, the language you use. Because this was the part of the exercise is like, just hearing ADHD has associations in your brain. We make that into something. So even just understanding what, when I hear ADHD, what do I think? What are the thoughts about that word? Or I guess it's an acronym rather than a word. But, and even breaking it down, like attention deficit. Ooh, what do I think when I hear that? Because that'll reveal the thoughts that you are likely applying to yourself if you get an ADHD diagnosis. I'd add into procrastination. That's my favorite one to do with people because one of the things that blew my mind when I first started getting coached, I had the immense privilege. My first coach was Simone. And she's my mentor and I love her to death of her. She at some point just questioned was like, what if procrastination was not a problem? And I was like, wait, what? I can do that? Like completely blew my mind because, of course, everyone hears procrastination. and Almost all of us have a very negative association with it. So just questioning that, like completely, completely fucked with my entire view of the world in the best way possible. Yeah, I love it. I always just say that procrastination is disagreeing with yourself about what you should be doing in any given moment. We've talked about, I don't finish things, right? Or like I sit on, scroll on TikTok for two hours, but I'm like, but I agree with myself. So it's not procrastination. (laughs) So just twisting it, reframing it. Yeah. Yeah. The way I think about it now, the definition I like is the voluntary delay of a task. It's like, I'm choosing to delay a task. Once again, it's like this owning your power and owning your choice that like, yeah, I am willing to do this. It might mean there's some consequences in the future that like aren't, fun, but like, you know what? I'm going to live with that. Like I now build certain forms of procrastination into my life because I know if I have some sort of like class I'm teaching or a presentation to do or something like I'm going to wait till the last minute. I'll marinate it in my head the entire time. So it's not going to be a problem. But like the day before is probably when I'm going to do the vast majority of it. And I just clear my schedule and clear the morning before. And then after I do it, I have like a day of rest because I know I'm going to need it. Yes. It's not a problem. (laughs) This is so good. I I lead a one-day kickoff at the beginning of my program. And I, the last time I did it, it was, everything was prepared. I spent 30 minutes total in the morning of the event reviewing my notes. And I was like, good to go. 30 minutes for a one-day event. Yeah, exactly. And I love that idea. I work with clients on that a lot is like, what if you're already prepared enough? Or what if you need way less preparation than you think? A hundred percent. Yep. That is another fabulous thing to just believe about yourself is like, I'm actually already prepared. Because it's true. 99% of the time you already know enough. The only thing that's left is to externalize it in some way, shape or form. And that actually isn't that hard when you sort of when you have the urgency when you have the pressure to just like, spew it out. And I view it very much as a spewing process. Perfect. (laughs) I love it. Well, thank you so much for all of your wisdom. You definitely added a very fresh new perspective on ADHD. Where can people follow up with you if they want to learn more about your work? Sure. So probably the best place nowadays is Instagram. I'm Meg Kierstead, which is K-I-E-R-S-T-E-A-D. I have too many vowels in my last name. I also have a website, which is MeganKierstead.com. Between those two places, you will have pretty much everything you need either to work with me one-on-one or as I mentioned, I do have a group program and I post, I post pretty frequently. So I hear my content's not too bad. So I'd recommend following me. It's pretty great. You have to say the name of your program because it's just such an amazing name. 
It's called the Black Sheep Playground, and it's pretty much the best place ever. And it's not just for people with ADHD, though. Many people in the program are ADHDers. It's really about anyone who wants to entirely rewrite the rules around how to live, thrive, own a business, and has a bit of that black sheep rebel rebel mindset. If so, you belong. You belong with the, the rest of your black sheep. <laughs> Perfect. Thank you so much for joining today. Thank you for listening to the Half Finished to Done podcast. If you're ready to become a self-assured repeat project finisher, the best place to work with me is in my eight-week group coaching program, Half Finished to Done Live. You'll leave our time together with one finished project and the skills you need to finish any project, personal or business, in the future. Just head to peakcoaching.co slash HFD live for your next step. Can't wait to work with you.